It's a great pleasure to have the new Stalin of theory with us tonight to conclude this human-animal workshop. Slavoj Žižek is a philosopher and a critical theorist working in the traditions of uh, Hegelianism, Marxism, and Lacanian psychoanalysis. This is the least I can say. He's currently researcher, senior researcher at the Institute of Sociology in Ljubljana, Slovenia, and a professor at the European Graduate School in Switzerland. His most recent books include Violence, Living in the End Times, all published by Verso, and a forthcoming 1,200-page volume on Hegel, entitled Less Than Nothing, which can be easily purchased, pre-ordered on Amazon with nothing less than a 25% discount currently. So, bye. <laughs> the title of this paper today is quite appropriate for our discussions. The animal does not exist. Slavoj Žižek. Thank you very much. First, let me tell you how proud I am to be here for very precise reasons. I don't know to what extent you follow the politically correct fashions and pressures, but what disturbs me in the last couple of years, and you can vouch for me here, especially in the United Kingdom, is how, uh, because on the one hand we have now this aggressive, let's call it naively, bourgeois liberal materialism, Dawkins, Hitchens, and so on, and because of the link with some Palestinians and so on, all of a sudden I noticed it's considered politically incorrect to simply emphasize that you are a materialist. Like I wrote once a comment claiming how not only you can be ethical by being a materialist, but only as a materialist you can be really ethical, blah, blah, and then I got bombarded that my message is, I don't even mention Islam in that text. Why did you turn into Islamophobia and so on and so on? It's as if not to offend Palestinians or whoever, it's better not to criticize even religion. So, no, I remain an old-fashioned materialist. So, let me begin with a strange starting point, because it's not an author to whom I often refer, Jacques Derrida, in his book, uh, The Animal That Therefore I Am. Uh, although this title, the, of course with obvious uh, references to Descartes, although this title was intended as an ironic stab at Descartes, one should, I think, take it with more of a literal naivety. The Cartesian cogito is not a separate substance different from the body, as Descartes himself misunderstood his cogito. Uh, at the level of substantial content, I am nothing but the animal that I am. What makes me human is the very formal, formal declaration of being as an animal. The thus starting point is that every clear and general differentiation between humans and the animal that we know from the history of philosophy, from Aristotle to Heidegger, from Lacan to Levinas, should be deconstructed. What, what this Derrida's question, and here I think is Derrida at his best. Here I agree with the tendency of his questioning. 
What, for example, really legitimizes us to say that only humans speak while animals only emit sounds? You know, this is the usual answer to that famous example of cow. One stupid bee finds, finds honey at a certain shrub and goes back to the tribe and performs a certain dance which precisely signals what direction, how far is the honey. The idea is these are only signals. This is not language proper. Or what legitimizes us to say that only humans experience things as such while animals are just captivated by their animal life world, the thesis of Heidegger. Or that another thesis by Lacan, that only humans can feign to feign, like reflectively. I lie that I lie. I tell the truth, but I count that what is literally true will be taken as a lie. Uh, while animals just directly fail or lie. Furthermore, that only humans are mortal, experience death, while animals simply die. Or that animals enjoy a harmonious sexual relationship or instinctual mating, while only for us humans, as Lacan put it, il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel. Derrida displays here, I think, the best of what I'm tempted to call the common sense of deconstruction, asking naive questions which undermine philosophical propositions taken for granted for centuries. What, for example, legitimizes Lacan to claim with such self-evidence, without providing any data or arguments, that animals cannot feign to feign? What legitimizes Heidegger to claim as a self-evident fact that animals don't relate to their death? As Derrida emphasizes again and again, the point of this questioning is not to abolish the gap that separates men from other animals. It's not to attribute also to animals what we call spiritual properties. This, as you probably know, is the path of some eco-mystics who claim that not only animals, but even trees and other plants communicate in a secret language of their own for which we humans are blind, and so on and so on. The point is rather that all these differences should be rethought, conceived in a different way. Now I want to pursue this path. Such a negative characterization of animals, they are speechless, they exchange signals, but they don't speak properly, or, as Heidegger put it, they are uh, wordless, or rather, in a very interesting way, you know these famous passages from Heidegger's seminar in, from 2930, where Heidegger develops this triad of, uh, of uh, dead objects, animals, and humans, and say objects are weltlos, without world, they just are that stupidly. Animals are weltarm, they have a world, but a narrow world into which they are absolutely captivated, while only humans do have properly the world. And of course, Heidegger himself immediately is aware of the problems here. How can you say that animals are weltarm? I mean, why this limitation? Is it that, again, you already presuppose humans? So the question is, are animals, veldarm, 
in themselves or just in comparison with humans. And I like the madness of Heidegger at that point, where for a brief moment he regresses into romantic philosophy of nature, where he claims that what if animal life is in itself well armed, in the sense that they, animals themselves, experience their predicament condition as terribly constrained and he quotes here, Heidegger quotes here, Schelling which speaks about melancholy of all living beings, how living nature, pre-human nature itself strives towards its liberation, so that this is an old, as you probably know, Gnostic mystical motive that human speech is not just an affair of the humans, it retroactively liberates nature, living nature in its entirety. So, uh, again, uh, such negative characterization of animals, speechless, worldless, engenders the appearance of a positive determination which is false. For example, when we claim that animals are captured by their environs and so on and so on. I think we encounter here the same phenomenon as the one in, that is usually at work in traditional Eurocentric anthropology. Viewed through the lenses of the modern Western rational thought as the standard of maturity, the other non-European others cannot but appear as primitives caught into magic thinking or those who really think that their tribe originated from some stupid totemic animal or that a pregnant woman was really inseminated by a spirit and not by a man and so on and so on. You see, the parallel I try to draw is this one, that uh, when modern anthropology, or rather the one from 100 years ago in its early naivety, visited primitive tribes, they projected into them a certain pre-modern naivety, as if those idiots really believed in ghosts, they thought that they really originate from totem, and so on and so on. But it's absolutely clear that this is not the case. This image of a primitive who really believes is immediately caught into the appearance is simply a retroactive construction of... Uh, sorry. Yeah, a, a retroactive construction of us uh, humans. Uh, if anything, it can be proven that the so-called primitives, or generally in Europe, pre-modern people, had, on the contrary, a much more refined sense of reflexive mediation or distance and so on. For example, let me mention a well-known book that I quote all the time, or at least refer to, Paul Vein, uh, Did the Ancient Greeks Believe in Their Myths? where he demonstrates that, no, definitely not. Ancient Greeks were not idiots. They didn't think that if you climb to the Mount Olympus, you will then see, I don't know, Zeus screwing Aphrodite or whatever. <laughs> they, no, but, you know, the question is, what then did they think? And Paul Vane also demonstrates that they also, it's also wrong to read it in our enlightened European way, a simple metaphoric thinking. You know, people usually say, no, Zeus was for them just a personalized metaphor of some cosmic creative force or whatever. No, this is also wrong. 
What is difficult for us to accept is that never do we reach that point of immediacy where words really meant or whatever. Here, I think, incidentally, we should also reject so-called phenomenological reconstruction of meaning, which is based on the idea that originally we have the full experience which later gets ritualized, emptied, turned into a mere ritual, and so on and so on. You know, like, I don't know, the idea is, for example, shaking hands. Oh, originally it meant a gesture of friendship because it's a proof that I don't hold a knife in my hand, but later it became an empty gesture or whatever. No, I think that precisely there never was this moment of full meaning which later became an empty form. From the very beginning, from the very beginning I claim the distance is here. Which is why for me, if there is naivety, the most naive position is precisely that of radical deconstructionism. Where do you encounter this naivety? Do you notice how if you read, okay, now the style is already a little bit out of fashion, but if you read classical deconstructive works from 20, 30 years ago by Derrida or my personal friend, theoretical enemy, uh, Judith Butler, uh, what the first thing that strikes the eye is the incredible amount of quotes, sorry, quotation marks and conditional formulations. Like, you know, you will never get them to simply say, for example, my old ironic example, if you ask Judith Butler, what is this? She wouldn't like to say this is a, a, a glass of water. She would say, if we temporarily, for strategic reasons, endorse the essentialist denotative functioning of language, then, and she likes to put it in this, then maybe we can risk the hypothesis that this is the glass of water. <laughs> it's the same as uh, Umberto Eco pointed out that today, in, with this postmodern reflexive attitude, you cannot even say, I love you. Today, you should somehow qualify it not to appear ridiculous. Like, uh, uh, maybe uh, as a poet would have put it, I love you. <laughs> but what, where's the mistake here? The mistake is precisely in the fear that if I say it directly, I would somehow have meant it too immediately. What the ancient people knew is that even when I say I love you, all the distance, as the poets would have put it, is already included. We are the stupid ones today. We don't get it that also without all those quotations, marks, the distance is here. So what I'm saying again, is that uh, in the same way that modernity builds retroactively an image of natural immediacy, fullness, whatever you want, uh, that the same goes also for this basic divide human-animal. So the first ideological critical operation here is but then there's a second step, which is even maybe more crucial. The first step, I think, is to dismantle this myth of pseudo-Hegelian myth. Hegel doesn't do this at all. That we start with some naive, beautiful immediacy, which then gets reflected, mediated. No, reflection distance is here from the very beginning. For example, what is the beautiful beginning for Hegel? 
ancient Greece, Antigone, are you crazy? Hegel's whole point of reading Antigone is that the split, the cut, is here from the very beginning. There never is a moment of authentic state. State emerges by way of being split. So again, the first point, of course, is to denaturalize our own opposition by way of introducing the moment of reflexivity distance into the naive other. Again, the very first step is to take into account how this naive other is a presupposition already for others themselves. You know, I read some wonderful uh, anthropological books where they inquired into, for example, one classic book that I read, they went to a tribe, Native American, so-called, and uh, Indians, and asked them, do you really think that uh, you originate from that totem or of your tribe, some stupid old bird? And of course, you get always the same answer. Of course, we are not stupid. We don't believe that we originate. But some people, some ancestors told us that way ago there were people who really believed it, and so on and so on. And of course, you never encounter people who really believe it. You always encounter just people who heard about the other people that they believed in, and so on and so on. No? So the best example I can imagine here on this reflexivity, it's a beautiful story, I'm sorry if you know it, but I like to repeat it. It's, uh, uh, it happened around 200 years ago, I read, I, I read, I think it's in New Guinea. New Guinea. Yeah, where, so I heard that uh, uh, a group of anthropologists heard that there is in the middle of the island some terrible tra some tribe and that they dance some terrible death uh, death dance with terrifying masks and so on. So okay, they went into the jungle, finally they did reach this tribe and they arrived in the evening, they asked them, could you please dance for us this dance? Then they went to sleep. In the morning, when they awakened, refreshed, the tribe members did dance this horrible dance for them. It was exactly what they expected. No, horrible masks and so on, terrible shot. And then they left the tribe and wrote the report. Unfortunately, another expedition joined the same tribe uh, uh, 20 years ago and got the true story, which was that uh, these uh, members of the tribe simply wanted to be polite. And they somehow guessed that this stupid anthropologist wanted some terrible dance with death masks and so on. So the whole night they were preparing this mask to satisfy them in the morning. So again, it was really mistake for their own eyes. So again, this is what, uh, you know, this is the emancipatory moment of Kafka, you remember, at the end of that famous parable in, uh, in the trial, when uh, after the man from the country dies, the doorman says, this door was here only for you. Like, your gaze was implied for it. That you, in the same way that this dance was constructed for the gaze of the anthropologists, this image of nature or animal life in its naive immediacy, whatever, is constructed for our gaze. Rational, rational thought thus engenders the figure of 
the irrational mythic thought. What we get here is the process of violent simplification, which occurs with every rise of the new. In order to assert something radically new, the entire past has to be reduced to some basic defining future. And now I want nonetheless to defend a little bit this measure. Namely, uh, did you notice how every theory which presents itself as a radical break has to enact this violent retroactive totalization? Like Marx, the thesis 11, you know, like all philosophers still now have only interpreted we now, or Heidegger, all philosophy till me is just metaphysics of presence, or, 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 or all is ideology and so on. You, even, even Derrida does this. The idea being, till his deconstruction, all philosophy is, again, a version of metaphysics of presence, phallogocentric, and so on and so on. I think maybe the first step of a truly dialectical thought is to question this retroactive totalization. And here, I think, we get two strange bedfellows, Deleuze and Lacan, which, who, in spite of all their differences, they don't do this. One should admit, for Lacan and for Deleuze, they never totalize in this sense the past. They are like, you know, Deleuze speaks out this philosopher, that philosopher particularly, they don't do this retroactive uh, totalization. Uh, uh, but also in a, at a different level, we find the same operation, for example, from our Western Judeo-Christian tradition. We try to throw together all other traditions into the same oriental or pagan or whatever stands, obliterating the incredible wealth of positions covered up by the term oriental thought. For example, can you imagine something more different from Indian metaphysics, Upanishads, castes, and so on, than the Chinese Confucianism, which is precisely agnostic, pragmatic stance, explicitly rejecting uh, metaphysics, and so on and so on. So that's, again, the first step of dialectical critique of metaphysics, which should also be applied to animals. We should not forget, as among others, you Roxana were saying before, but others also, I think, that uh, animal is a differential category. Animal emerges, there is no unity of the animal. Animal emerges with the rise of man, and you can complicate the issue, the issue, and this would be a nice, if some of you are stupid young students, I advise you to do, if you study philosophy, a kind of a, a small uh, seminar or what, it would be wonderful, namely, what kind of a seminar? You know, when philosophers say the animal, you can easily discover how they usually have in mind a very specific animal which mysteriously is selected. For example, with Heidegger, is a, it's a lizard, I think. Well, this is lazy nature or what, but when he always, when in his seminar 29-30, Grundbegriffe der Metaphysik, yeah, he always mentions uh, a lizard that's sitting on a 
lying on a rock and baking in hot sun and so on. It's always a stupid lizard. Like, why not an ape? Why not this? Why not that? No. And so again, sometimes it's an ape or whatever, but I claim, you know, it's always totalized under the hegemony of one animal. Now, in the next step, I want nonetheless to defend this procedure of retroactive totalization. Uh, it's easy to claim here to be against binary logic. But I claim that maybe it's time against all this, you know, one of the easy senses of post easy cheap rhetorical tricks of postmodernism is to, to reject binary logic. When you say this against that, if you don't have any good arguments, the easiest thing to say is that you are caught in binary logic. So, no. The proof of this bullshit of attacking binary logic is for me a wonderful paraphrase. I bought a book, I hope it's translated into German. Politically correct guide to the Bible, where they take the biggest hits from the Bible and they translate them in a politically correct way, you know. For example, you know that uh, famous passage that I walk, over, I walk in the valley of shadow, but I feel fear no evil, because, and then you have the politically correct version, I love it. I think I told her, she was mad at me, to Judith Butler, that probably she was. <laughs> I walk in the valley of shadow, but I fear no evil, because I know that good and evil are only binary metaphysical opposites. <laughs> I mean, the way to answer this is there is even a better one. In a song by a black rapper, you find it. It's even better. It's, I walk in the valley of shadow, but I fear no evil, because I'm the meanest motherfucker in the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but let me go on. So be very careful how, when you have this emphasis on multiplicity against binary logic, it usually works to obfuscate a certain central antagonism. You know, this is how, for example, the next step, of course, is then against class binary logic, why only two classes, there are more classes, there are more sexes, and so on and so on. I, I, I think that, uh, that uh, even if this retroactive totalization, when you do a cut and violently totalize all that comes before, even if it's, in a way, violent imposition, there is a moment of truth in it. That is to say, what if the multiplicity of animal forms is to be conceived as a series of attempts to resolve some basic tension which defines animality, a tension which can only be formulated from a minimal distance? So again, you see, this would be for me a properly dialectical solution. What emerges through the animal is, of course, not this romantic bullshit of Oh, the whole nature was suffering. Now we humans liberate nature by starting to talk. But it's only through this minimal distance of speech that retroactively we can formulate what? Not the eternal 
essence of animality, but the deadlock of animality. I think the problem of fighting essentialism is not to drop the notion of essence, but to redefine the notion of essence. Here, I'm so sad I don't have the time to go into it, because here I have a problem with nominalism. I'm an absolute realist of the universal. Not, of course, in the stupid pseudo-platonic sense of their universal essences, but in the sense of that the proper dialectical relationship between universal and particular is not a nominalist one, but it's to introduce a tension between universality and the particular as such. Against the New Age bullshit, where you say particular elements are struggling with each other and universality is the space of the struggle, we should say, no, the first antagonism is not between particular moments of the universality, but between universality and its particular forms. What if universality is a name of a certain antagonism and particular forms are attempts to, to mystify, to deal with this antagonism? This is why, incidentally, I am opposed to this political correct bullshit of uh, uh, ooh, there is no capitalism. There are only concrete forms of capitalism. I agree, what concretely exists are only, you know, corporate capitalism, liberal capitalism, capitalism with Asian values, which of course has nothing to do with Asia, but has a lot to do with, with the fact that, and this is a wonderful dialectical point, that today, this is the ultimate revenge of Stalinism, Stalinist communism on capitalism. Okay, maybe Fukuyama was right, communism lost. But look at China. But communists are today the best managers of capitalism. <laughs> so, uh, we, okay, there are only different capitalisms. But they all try to resolve, obfuscate, control the same antagonism. What unites all capitalisms are not some abstract universal features, but it's a certain deadlock. What if we can apply the same to animals? What do I mean by this? Recall the well-known elaboration of the general equivalent from the first edition of Marxist, of Capital, by Marx. This is a sentence you find only in the first edition. Marx then, as you know, for the second edition, he rearranged the first chapter and this passage disappears. I quote it. It is as if, Marx is describing here the logic of money as general equivalent, it is as if alongside and external to lions, tigers, rabbits, and all other actual animals, which form, when grouped together, the various kinds, species, subspecies of the animal kingdom, there existed, in addition, the animal, the individual tier, the individual incarnation of the entire animal kingdom, end of quote. This image of money as the animal, romping alongside all the heterogeneous instances of particular sorts of animality that exist around us, does it not lend itself to capture what, what Derrida describes as the gap that separates the animal from the multiplicity of actual animal uh, uh, life. Now, I want to apply here uh, the big rule of Hegelian dialectics, which, as, uh, as Frank 
developed in detail in his book on Hegel's Pöbel. Hegel didn't follow consequently, namely that in each Hegelian totality or concrete universality, universality itself is one of its own species. It encounters itself among its species as its own gegensätzliche Bestimmung, oppositional determination. And this is where Hegel is not radical enough. For example, Rebel. Hegel is good enough to discover the necessity of producing this excess pearl. What he is not ready, but he should have done to posit is that precisely as such as non-society, as the element which sticks out with no place in society, rebel is the only point of universality. It is as if in rebel, in rebel, human as a social being as such exists. All others are just particular, precisely in the outcast, the universality comes to exist as such. So I would claim, which is then this animal, which is the animal? We humans. This is how I'm tempted to read early Marx's determination of man as Gattungswesen, a being of species. It does not mean that humans are one, some ecologists read this as, oh, you see, Marx was already close to ecology. Humans are one among the species. No, no. Gattungswesen means precisely something more radical. A species which relates to itself as a universal being, as a species. Incidentally, Marx is here, of course, very much embedded in uh, German idealist uh, uh, heritage. And uh, I claim that, uh, now I want to make my next point, I claim that what if this dust sphere, this animal as such, does exist, and these are we humans, and this is the horror that animals see in us. We are the animal for Precisely as non-animal, we are the animal for others, for other animals. So let me go on here, next point. It is not enough to say that, that uh, while the, the, the determination of animals as speechless and so on is wrong, the determination of humans as rational speaking beings and so on is right. So again, you got my point, when I oppose this naive idea of defining animals with some immediate capture, like captivation, like animals are just immediately caught into their environment, speechless, vent arm, and so on. The point is not we can see what we humans are, but we mystify the other. The entire field is wrong, which is why uh, the, if the first step is that we should demystify the other, that is to say, animals are not, in this sense, naive, immediately caught into their environs. Uh, this is clearly just a retroactive projection, a kind of symmetrical mirror image. If we humans can do it, animals cannot do that, and so on and so on. I think that the true mystification is uh, in that what this opposition, standard opposition, 
You know, human as a speaking. We speak, animals don't speak. We relate to death, animals don't relate to death. What effectively disappears here is not so much what animals truly are in themselves, in the sense of we already reduce animals to our human perspective, they are just reduced to what we are not. What we really miss is the most radical dimension of what we humans are. Here, in spite of their opposition, Kierkegaard and Hegel are, share the same point of opposing becoming, werden, and being, sein. The standard opposition, animal-human, is formulated from the perspective of human being. We are already constituted and we measure with our standard, reason, speech, whatever, animals. What this perspective cannot think is the human in its becoming. It thinks animals from within the given human standpoint. It cannot think the human from the animal standpoint. Uh, what, do I, uh, what do I mean by this? Uh, 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 here I claim psychoanalysis enters. No, I will provide the formula, then I will develop it. I think that the, and here I said that Lenka's Bancic, she has some set problems, that's why she asked me to, and Laden Dollar, who has different medical problems, and I, as you can see, am ill. I'm getting here KGB obsessed that there was some reactionary plot to prevent us coming. She got an operation today, Alenka, of her. What is this stupid big bone? Uh, spine or what? Yeah, some discs there that put pressure on her nerves, and she stopped feeling her legs. Her left leg, which I immediately interpreted as the hysterical disavowal of her left-wing orientation of the <laughs> But I said because she precisely wanted to develop this. The notion of drive, the Freudian trip, as precisely that which is not yet culture in the sense of symbolic universe, but no longer, no longer animal instinct. The idea being that something is in between, no longer animal life, but not yet human culture. And here we should, I would like to follow Alenka. She developed this in detail, she wanted to develop it here, of how, uh, I'm so sad we don't have time, how well he's translated here, may assume after finitude, no? So maybe some of you, you translated it or what? Yeah. You published it, okay. <laughs> so uh, maybe some people read it. Alenka uh, elaborated, I think, a nice Lacanian answer to Meyasu's two central points. The first one about this universal contingency. Her point is that while agreeing with his point of asserting contingency, the point is that she mobilizes here the Lacanian opposition dialectic of non-all. Meyasu reaps universal contingency in what Lacan would have called masculine formulas of sexuation. A universality, everything is radically contingent based on an exception. Contingency itself is necessary. And Alenka, I think, in a detailed, pages-long analysis, 
some scout you get a much more provocative result if you apply apply if you read contingency along the what Lacan calls the feminine logic of sexuation. That is to say, contingency is non-all precisely because you cannot totalize it through exception. Not because something is not contingent, but precisely because there is nothing which is not contingent. And then, okay, her second, even more triumphant argument against Meyasu, I think, and this is the best introduction to the point I want to make, concerns precisely the problem of fossils. You know the, uh, you know what this problem is about. Mayasu claims that the entire transcendental legacy, transcendental Kantian, post-Kantian philosophy, cannot provide a clear answer to the status of fossils. Like, you see a fossil. If you take it ontologically seriously, it refers to something which existed to cut a long story short, before there was any transcendental horizon which constituted it and so on and so on. And in a very convincing way, I agree, Mayasu demonstrates how all the usual transcendental tricks don't work here. But I think that uh, 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 Mayasu even, since we were talking so much about Darwinism, no? Here I am on if we want to isolate the dimension that maybe Darwin didn't see, I would like to rehabilitate, I forgot his name, a well-known well friend of Darwin, but at the same time a theologist, who, you must know the theory, it's wonderful, Stephen Jay Gould wrote about it, who provided, I think, the best answer, theological answer to Darwinism. He tried to bring together Darwinism and theology. His problem was the following one. Darwinism unambiguously demonstrates that fossils, there was life, blah, 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 thousands, tens of thousands of years, millions before there were human beings. <coughs> How to bring this together with the uh, well-known fact, which must be true, because my God, the Bible is true, it's the word of God, that the world was created, I think, about 4,000 and 100 years ago. There is even a wonderful British empiricist claim that God created the world minus 4025 BC at 9 in the morning. It's a wonderful idea, like God took breakfast. Okay, and this priest, friend of Darwin, proposed, you must know it, a wonderful solution which I think is, of course, wrong as a scientific theory, but it's beautiful as the theory of ideology. It's that, of course, how can God be wrong? God created the world for 1,200 years, whatever, BC, but he created directly fossils as such to give us humans the wrong uh, impression of openness, you know. Like when you create a world for a child and put on windows like a kind of a, like in movies, you know, when they create the false background so that the world appears larger and much. So the idea, and although, of course, this is maybe nonsense biologically, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. but it's absolutely true, I claim, as a theory of ideology. 
This is how in ideology we are all the time doing it, even literally. If you translate it into German, a wonderful book by Eric Hobsbawm, no, he is just the editor, uh, Invented Traditions. It's a wonderful book which goes in different nations. And for example, what do you know about Scotland? No, they were invented in the late 19th century. Absolutely nothing to do. No, how most of the traditions that we celebrate as blah blah were invented. Invented usually late 19th century and so on. So, but, but we are doing this all the time, I claim. And I claim that maybe every national identity is based on fossils, in a way. Because, you know, Ernst Renan, great guy, okay, dirty racist, one of these early scientific French racists, but he provided, I think, the best definition of uh, what is a nation that we can imagine. He said, nation is a large group of people uh, characterized by three features. They are kept together by lies about their past, shared enemies in their present, and stupid illusions about their future. I don't know how it is with you. For us, Slovenes, I think this holds true. We are kept together by lies about our past. For example, the most popular lie is now that we are really not Slavic, we are barbarian. We are Etruscans, you know. <laughs> then uh, recent enemies, they change, that's the problem. No? When I was young, there were Albanians, then Milosevic, Serbs were, Albanians were good. Now, Albanians are also becoming bad, and I must tell you, Croats are. It looks bad. <laughs> there are also Italians and so on. <laughs> and illusions about the future. I mean, the dream of Slovene right-wingers is let's get rid of the communist plot. You know, every honest Slovene knows that secretly communists still dominate the nation. No? If we get rid of them, in four years we will be wealthier than Switzerland. No? It works. So what I'm saying is that uh, maybe I would like to combine a truly dialectical Darwinism, which would be the one which would include this dimension, of course, not as a fact, but as a necessary fiction constitutive of reality. This, is, this uh, retroactivity is not simply subjective. It's, I will not develop it now, it will take too much time, which I'm already losing. What I only want to say is that it's too simple to say, oh, this is just the retroactive illusion, and so on, and so on. But okay, going back to the point, fossils. So, uh, I claim that the true problem, and this brings us to Lacanian psychoanalysis, to what Lacan calls object A, the impossible objectal equivalent of the subject. Lacanian answer to Meyasu would have been that the true problem is not the fossil out there, like was there life on earth before human beings, no problem. The true fossil are we ourselves. That is to say, it's part of our identity as humans that we are unable to see ourselves in becoming. We should not get caught into this problem of we and the animals, do we see animals the way they are in themselves? No, the problem is that we cannot see ourselves as well, what we are. 
in itself, as it were. The pro the pro what's the problem? Let me give you a religious parallel. It's easy to claim, oh, we Christians cannot read properly pagan religions. We already reduced them to our uh, perspective. It's also easy to play these games with claiming, like all of my Jewish friends are claiming this, that you stupid Christians, you have a supersessionist view, you reduce us to just a step before, like, Judaism and then Christianity, you miss what Judaism is, and so on and so on. Maybe, but uh, uh, what I'm saying is that what we miss even more is, how to put it, what was Christ before he became a Christian? This is the true perversion. What kind of, are we aware what kind of monstrosity Jesus Christ was? For the eyes of the Jews, before he, as it were, created his own horizon of meaning with the story he told about himself. Because the way we perceive Christianity, it's already from the perspective of the book. In one of the Bruegel's paintings, is it Bruegel? I think so, on crucifixion, you know, it's this wonderful detail, which is historically true, ideologically. <coughs> Not historically, sorry. You have crucifixion, and then you have the two robbers crucified, and one of them, one of them was good one, I think. No? You see the good one already making confession to a priest who holds in his hand the Bible. <laughs> but this is how we perceive the past. It's true. As if it's always already here. So the problem is to see it in becoming. But so you see my point. What the, the truth of Christianity is, what was Christ before he became a Christian? That's the truly traumatic point. This is how we should read uh, uh, that uh, wonderful anecdote about Napoleon, you know, when Napoleon crowned himself as an emperor. You know the story. The Pope approached him and Napoleon took the crown from Pope's hand and put it on. Uh, but you know what Pope told them, Napoleon? Pope was... He told Napoleon, I know why you are doing this to me. You want to destroy Christianity. And then the Pope went on, but thousands So that uh, maybe the whole of Christianity, this institution, is a struggle not against the pagan tradition, but against its own excess. And in a similar way, I claim, the whole of being human, symbolic stories and so on, is one struggle to control not our animal nature, but the excess which marked our break with nature. You find even, I'm repeating myself a little bit here, I know, you find traces of this even in uh, books like, sorry, in, uh, uh, in Kant's philosophy. For example, there is a wonderful passage in Kant's lesser-known Immanuel Kant's small text on education, where Kant proposes his famous thesis that man is an animal who needs a master. And then he went on, he goes on Kant 1. And he says, because only humans have a certain, while he uses the same German strange word, I forgot it, it means a kind of an unruliness, wild freedom unruliness, which, as Kant emphasized, has to be cultivated, it's not cultured, 
But it's not natural. It's also not nature. It's a kind of a wild explosion of uh, nominal freedom, which is already a break with nature, but has to be cultivated. And which is why, again, only humans need a master. It's a very nice thesis, because again, it totally undermines the idea that we need culture to control our the, the brutality of our animal nature or whatever. No, no. The brutality is precisely the Freudian, the Freudian tribe, the Freudian, the Freudian drive. You know who made this point? My, I'm sorry to quote him all the time, my favorite Catholic philosopher, Gilbert Kiss Chesterton, in his Everlasting Man, it's a wonderful dialectical text, you can find it on the net, he precisely tries to imagine this scene of how the first humans must have appeared to natural animals around them. A quote, the simplest truth about man is that he is a very strange being, almost in the sense of being a stranger on the earth. In all sobriety, he has much more of the external appearance of one bringing alien habits from another land than of a mere growth of this one. He has an unfair advantage and an unfair disadvantage. Man cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot trust his own instincts. He is at once a creator moving miraculous hands and fingers and a kind of cripple. He is wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes. He is propped on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among the animals, he is shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter. As if he had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe hidden from the universe itself. Alone among the animals, he feels the need of averting his thought from the root realities of his own bodily being, and so on, and so on. So again, I, uh, this would be my first point, that the excess that needs to be explained, it's not, can we understand the animals? It's uh, the other side, as it were. The true invisible fossil is what we humans are in ourselves, what was lost the moment we got caught into our ideological self-perception. Now, what is this point? Here I want to do some wild Darwinian uh, speculation. I am... Where am I now? <laughs> okay. Well, I will now really try to condense it. My first point here would have been that I disagree with those... Uh, 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 vulgar Darwinians who try to, when they try to naturalize human mind, who look for the solution in what human mind can do, its complexities and so on, you know, like we can talk, we can have in infinitesimal mathematics account and so on and so on. I claim that uh, maybe a much more productive way would have been to begin with what Alain Badiou noted when he pointed out that what defines a world are primarily not its positive features, but the way the structure of a world relates to its own inherent point of impossibility. 
And the true changes in the structure of the world are changes in the status of this impossibility, which does not simply mean that the impossible becomes possible. It's just somehow integrated as impossible. For example, the big revolution in mathematics in the 19th century is when the so-called uh, 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 this, uh, 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 imaginary numbers, the square root of minus one, became operative. Before, it was simply dismissed as nonsense. There can be no uh, square root of a negative number, so it's useless. Even to make an anti-Marxist step, even Marx in his mathematical manuscripts dismisses the square root of minus one as simple nonsense. But, you see, the big revolution of mathematics occurred when you prove that even if the square root of minus one is, in a way, impossible, nonsensical, you can use it, you can integrate it, it functions. My God, you can build buildings based on uh, uh, mathematical accounts which use the square root of minus one and so on and so on. So, uh, I claim it's not something similar with democracy and with capitalism. What is great about democracy is that it takes something which was for previous forms of government, simple traumatic impossibility. My God, the throne is empty. Let's, you know, you find this even in Stalinism it returns. Like, you know, in Stalinism always when the leader dies, usually people learn about it a couple of days later because the void has to be filled in immediately. You cannot afford a couple of days where you don't know who is in power, no? But democracy integrates this and makes it the very, the very instrument of its, okay, relative stability. Or capitalism does the same. The impossibility of stability, the system always revolutionizes itself, it makes it the very mode of its, okay, the, the, uh, mobility. What I claim is that what if we should look for what makes us humans humans, rather at this level, not at what we do, but the changed status of what we cannot do, the same integration of impossibility. What do I mean by this? Uh, I totally agree when you mention people like Dennett that they should be mentioned, they are not idiots. We can not, it's possible not to agree with them, but here and there they have good examples, they make a nice dialectical point. The one who is an idiot, I don't concede here, compromise is Steve Pinker. Uh, the proof, in his, I forgot which book, he uh, confronts this problem of how is it that we cannot understand, naturalize our own consciousness, our own mind. And he tries to provide a simple <coughs> evolutionary answer. His, Pinker's answer is that simply, of course, we cannot understand ourselves because our mind was not created in the course of evolutionary adaptive process for this aim. And he uses this metaphor. He says, uh, uh, in the same way that rabbits cannot understand infinitesimal calculus or whatever, because simply, it's not part of their life, life world. They need this work to, to evade 
to invade foxes to to get to get to get some stupid <coughs> vegetables to eat whatever. In the same way, we humans develop our intelligence for certain adaptive survival purposes sexual seduction, collective work, collaboration, and so on, not to solve metaphysical problems, how does our mind work, and so on, and so on. I agree, but there is one problem here, which is that, although there are problems which we cannot solve, maybe, metaphysical problems, there is one problem, one crucial difference, uh, Rabbits are not obsessed by infinitesimal calculus. It's simply external. They don't care about it. But we, how is it that we humans obsessively care again and again all the time for a problem for which, which has no adaptive value and so on and so on? And even further, what can be shown if you look really closely at the history of science is how... Uh, is how uh, for example, if you look at the development of modern machinery and so on, it's not in a vulgar Marxist way that, you know, first they were using machinery for concrete economic purposes, and then also, no, it started as a superfluous aesthetic endeavor. You know, in the court of Louis XIV, they had many, many only later they said, oh my God, we have this pure useless excess, why don't we apply it? To some. So I claim that, I claim that, that uh, what if human intelligence is basically defined at the zero level? It's not a positive achievement. It's more a kind of a getting stuck with a certain impossibility. Like, I want to resolve it, but I cannot, and I don't drop it, I go on and on and on. I'm tempted to say that uh, since plasticity was so much celebrated today. But are you aware? Okay, I will tell you the source. It's my good friend from Duke, now he is somewhere else, a Turkish anthropologist, but he enjoyed years ago a top position at Duke University, uh, uh, given Giesel there, who uh, uh, told me he made himself experiments with AIDS. And told me how, if anything, when confronted to a libidinal object, apes are much more plastic, you know. Like, you propose to an ape two sexual partners, one obviously more attractive than the other. <laughs> then, okay, first the ape selects the more attractive one, tries to, if it doesn't go, he said, okay, fuck off and go to the second one. <laughs> With humans, no, you, you know, the more impossible it is, if anything, humans are much more fixed. An impossibility, you, you remain, you get, you get stuck onto it. And I claim that this, maybe, is precisely this is precisely what Freud calls drive, this fixation on the impossibility. This, you know, you fail, but you repeat it, you, you kind of get caught into a, get caught into a, you get caught into a circle. Uh, uh, so, now, in order to avoid me getting caught into a circle, I will just conclude with Alain Badiou. Uh, it is here, I think, that, I'm uh, using a polemical point against Badiou, that uh, I think we should reject, I tended to reject his duality of human-animal and 
subject as the being of an event, in the sense of we are human animals caught into our ordinary pleasures uh, and so on, utilitarian, servicing the goods, but then from time to time the miracle happens, we are interpolated by the event and so on and so on. Usually Alain, but you, is attacked here for his idealism, like, oh my God, where does this come, this uh, event? Isn't this a remainder of some metaphysics or whatever? I tend to formulate exactly the opposite criticism. If there is something to be learned from not only psychoanalysis, but even from good, really good Darwinians, you mentioned him like Stephen Jay Gould and so on. He said, the problem is not there is no subject of the event. That is to say, the event should be reduced to or deduced from antagonisms, whatever, of human animal. If there is a lesson from psychoanalysis, it's that there is no human animal. That is to say, this image of a human, if there is any meaning of, in psychoanalysis, is that we humans, in our, as it were, not only as beings of event, but in our, as it were, nature itself. We don't strive for balance, happiness, and so on. We sabotage. Here, American ourselves all the time. Here, again, American constitution is wrong. You know, the pursuit of happiness. No, it's the pursuit of unhappiness, which defines us. So what I want to say is that, uh, I see the problem there, in this idea of human, I think that what Badiou calls human animal, of course there exists something like human animal, but it's strictly a secondary ideological formation. And I think, this would be my point, that the, the duality of human animal and subject of the event is not enough there must be a third level, which I precisely call the Freudian drive, which is something which already disturbs nature, but it's not yet culture. Okay, I don't want now to go on for too long, because one can develop things here very much in detail. I try to develop this a little bit in my Parallax view where I have a long chapter on debating evolutionary uh, 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 biology and so on. I'm in great sympathy with them. But what I claim is that reading, okay, not many, but yeah, some 20, 30 books. Of, I always notice how whenever evolutionary biologists try to portray that magic moment when out of animal instincts, human thought, whatever you call it, emerges, they systematically refer to the same metaphor, which is the metaphor of a self-relating circle. Like one of them uses the wonderful metaphor of how, you know, in sky, uh, sorry, in, uh, 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 in ice dancing, how the dancer, you make this movement that you... Pirouette. Turn, yeah, pirouette. And then he said, human thought is as if the spirit starts to turn in itself and magically you persist in the air. Another biologist uses this wonderful metaphor. He says that usually we are caught in this distance of uh, stimulus uh, reaction, but that what characterizes human being is that what 
is for animals a secondary reaction that we generate our own stimulus. This self-stimulus, it's a, a certain self-referential closure which they describe, which I think, again, is precisely the Freudian drive. And let me be here very clear. I'm not saying this is absolutely not meant in a non-naturalist way. I'm not saying somebody from above had to screw things up for us. No, I claim that here I agree with what you were saying, and I would have said this happened probably if we were to get an answer. This is my dream. It, it would have been, if we would get probably a totally stupid, not interesting answer. Maybe something went genetically wrong. Some, something went simply wrong. We got stuck. There is no, I don't believe in great origin of humanity. It was something which malfunctioned. And we were born humans when we started to enjoy this malfunctioning. Let <laughs> me put it in this way. And all the big things then, you see, this is my properly Hegelian dialectics. That we, we got so dynamic precisely because originally we got stuck. Being human means you find that, a libidinal object, and you got stuck to it. You failed to reach it, but you... So again, there is something here which I think nonetheless raises a couple of questions. The one question is, which is totally legitimate, which was raised many times today. Uh, how can something like this happen in the order of nature? I think one way, the wrong one, would have been, of course, to say, nonetheless, another dimension intervenes, blah, blah. No. I think a much more, and here I refer to what you said, uh, Oksana, uh, another much more radical dimension should be mentioned here. What if the only way to account for things like this, human symbolic order and so on, is to claim that, uh, you know, the moment, the moment you ask the problem, you formulate the problem in these terms, we have a complete natural causal order, and then, ooh, how can human freedom consciousness emerge? Here you get caught, either it's supernatural, or you must do what even Dene in Freedom Evolves does. He nonetheless claims that ultimately there is no freedom that what we experience as freedom is simply when we can freely, like without obstacles, follow our predispositions and so on and so on. But there is, I claim, another solution, which does not mean that freedom is just, as they like to call it, user's illusion, but it also doesn't mean a higher tendency uh, intervenes. It's simply, what if reality objective reality is ontologically not all. I think we must include, and this is for me answering, uh, 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 who formulated this question? You, yeah. Uh, this is for me the lesson to be drawn from quantum physics and so on. I am totally materialist. I hate this idea of, you know, 
quantum physics, oh my god, our mind is creating reality or whatever. No, but there is one lesson of quantum physics, which is again, reality in itself, it's not fully ontologically constituted. There are gaps in reality. Or to put it in another way, virtuality is not exclusively a human symbolic dimension. You can have virtual dimension, void, and so on, the effectivity of the void already in, already in reality itself. Here, back to Alain, I would like to supplement here, because would you allow me just really to conclude just one quote from Alain, but you, which I find uh, really problematic. Uh, it is from his, in English, theoretical writings, when he asked this elementary question, where does event come from, if all there is is being, the order of being? Here is the quote. We must point out that, in what concerns its material, the event is not a miracle. What I mean is that what composes an event is always extracted from a situation, always related back to a singular multiplicity, to its state, to the language that is connected to it, and so on. In fact, so as not to succumb to an obscure theory of creation ex nihilo, we must accept that an event is nothing but a part of a given situation, nothing but a fragment of being. Now, this is my problem with that view. If an event is nothing but a fragment of being, why cannot we describe this as such? Because his whole description is that an event cannot be reduced to the order of being. I claim that here we get uh, Badiou's secret Kantianism. And although he will thank me for saying this, his secret link to finitude. Because here he exactly reproduces the Kantian duality. You know how Kant says in, uh, towards the end of his critique, the practice in Vernunft, that we are only free from our finitude. Kant tries to imagine what were to happen to us if we humans were to gain full access to things in themselves, how things really are. And his answer, well known, is we would turn into puppets. We would lose our freedom because we would, even if we were to act ethically, we would have done it out of a simple pragmatic insight. Things are like this, I have to, we would. In other words, uh, so our freedom, our ethical activity and so on, is only, only emerges from the standpoint of our finitude. Now, with Alain, I have here a similar problem. If the event is nothing but a fragment of being, why then cannot we reduce it to being? His only consequent answer can be because of our finitude. But I would like to say no. It's not only a fragment of being, the point is precisely that being is incomplete. You must introduce the non-all of being. That in other words, uh, and this is, okay, it will get me too far. Uh, you know, but you have this ontology of multiplicity, multiplicities of multiplicities, and then you have the one comes secondary. 
I claim that we need maybe a different ontology, but I don't have time to put it down. Thank you, Father. But I think this is an excellent point to start a discussion. Uh, I would like okay, to... Uh, pull, pull the light out and do it. No, 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 no. I mean, all but you, all but you, I think there is going to be some strong and, uh, and fearful uh, I struggle. So. I, I'm completely on your side. And actually, my question... I, I'm leave. afraid to, to have you on my side. <laughs> I, will leave aside, I will leave aside one beautiful thing you said. Okay? Felix helped you, but at one point that was a slip of the tongue, but you said human thought is like Skype. You're looking for pirouette, and you said I spear, and the pirouette came from in, but you said it, I mean it's been recorded. Human thought is like Skype. But I, <laughs> I will tell you why I made this tip, because I never use Skype. You know why not? Because for me, the meaning of phone conversation is to be able to lie. You know, like I'm invited to talk, I don't want to go, I say, so sorry, I would love to come, but I will, and so on. The point is that if you are doing it on Skype, you can see the other's face, and it makes it much more difficult to lie. Skype only analyzes you, you cannot deceive that you are deceiving, you know. Look, I mean, I have two points. On one hand, I'm very sympathetic to your critique. But you go to but. But uh, on very dialogue, the very beginning of your question. So, very simple, uh, very simple question. What would you say about deconstruction, more specifically, very dialogue with regard to animality? Because if you, if I got you right, um, at one point you even said Derrida, in a sense, um, goes beyond Lacan. Insofar as that he warns us against the risk of a certain retroactive illusion of which Lacan is himself prey. And I would agree with you because I think Lacan, in a sense, when he speaks of the difference between the human and the animal, he embraces in a quite non critical way the old standing tradition of. German philosophical anthropology, which is then completely transvaluated into a kind of like hyper determination, you know, uh, super determination. The lack of determination is yeah, a determination, yeah, yeah. right? But then at one point you also said that uh, Lacan and Deleuze, unlike Derrida, do not carry out a retroactive totalization. So. Yeah, with question. regard to philosophy only, okay. with regard to history of philosophy. You know, Derrida has this, <coughs> which I find it sympathetic, because basically we all philosophers secretly do it. Mm -hmm. We think that we finally got it right and all other idiots will now. I mean, if you don't think that you are in some sense brighter than Kegel, then... Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't be doing it. No, I just to answer you quickly, then we can go on. You know, my answer here would have been that, yes, we have this Lacan, which is this simplistic Lacan, oh, all animals are caught into death with humans, and also this idea that, which is directly falsified by Stephen Jay Gould, that as if nature is some kind of homeostasis and so on, and only with humans introduce imbalance, chaos. But I claim that in his last 20 years, he started to problematize this. First, you know how he often engages in very interesting speculations of where in the so-called animal kingdom already you find maybe like already proto-elements. For example, he claims dolphins which play in a certain way with the fish. Just 
dropping, throwing the fish one to another. But the point is not that at the end the master dolphin gets the fish and swallows him. But it's just the circulation as such is the message. And claims, isn't this maybe beyond this just science, a kind of a fatty symbolic communication? So I think, I think that Lacan, and maybe there is no a clear answer here, oscillates between two, you know probably more about Lacan here than me, but my impression is that he somehow oscillates between the two versions. One is that we have the human animal and then language is like a foreign body which distorts the animal, symbolizes, castrates it. On the other hand, the much more interesting theory is the opposite one, that you have that something went terribly pathologically wrong with an animal and language tries to bring order into it. But so he, but but very, very quickly, what, what is that Derrida got right in this conscience? No, just problematizing this difference. Oh, okay. Just this. But no. no, 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 I'm not, if this, if you're asking me an honest yeah. Stalinist question that following your self-freely given confession that Stalin was basically right, uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, no, I'm not a Derrida and you will not get me here. If you want to send me to Gulag, you will have to find another. You tried to make me acknowledge that Alan Stalin is still that was trying to make you acknowledge that you're, you know, Derrida got it wrong most of the times, but he got it right when it really mattered. No, 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 the opposite. Uh, all right, three questions. And the first, I have to ask you, are you familiar with uh, a, a strange book, sort of a, a cult classic from the 1970s, Julian James' book, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind? Yeah, but it didn't give me a multiple orgasm. Was I wrong? <laughs> no, but it, was, it, was, it was immediately, it was immediately, immediately reappropriated by New Agers. That's when right. I was young, this was the New Ager Bible. That's right. But of course, you know, the interesting hypothesis there that, in fact, for instance, with the ancient Greeks, and it's relevant yeah. to your drawing on Baines, uh, that uh, according to James, the very distinction that you know you and Baines are using. I'm sorry, according to James. The very distinction that you and Baines are using to ask, all right, is it a matter of naive direct belief or the kind of uh, inner ironic distance which we have in our postmodern era, it's actually the latter instead of the former. That uh, with James, the idea is that it's perhaps neither of those, that it isn't a matter of either you know, sincerely believing or just pretending to believe, it's that they were literally directly hallucinating these voices and what you get the descriptions in, in Homer, for instance, of hearing the voice of the god in one's you know, uh, uh, chest, etc. That this was, you know, basically equivalent to what you have with modern day psychotics with auditory uh, hallucinations. And even though it might not be correct, it suggests the possibility of a third way of relating to this that would be needed, where it, the problem would be not retrojecting our idea of naive direct belief onto the Greeks, but rather retrojecting the very, you know, in this sense, false choice between naive direct belief or, you know, inner ironic, you know, quote unquote postmodern. Uh, scare quote distantiation. I see your point, but yes. my answer would have been that you don't even need this book. It's already, if the choice is between both uh, ironic sense and naively believing, my point is that already an ordinary, everyday human speech provides a third choice. Let's say, okay, we are really friends. My old example, let's say we were, let's say we wouldn't be really friends. 
And let's say we meet each other, you know, my old example, on the street. And what do I say when I see you? I say, oh, nice to see you, how are you? What do I think? I think, fuck it, why didn't I see you five seconds before so that I can go to the other side of the street? And I don't care if you drop that here. Okay. What I claim is that, uh, what happens here is that we both know that I don't mean it seriously, but nonetheless, at a higher level encoded, I, you know, although we both know this is literally a lie, when I say, how are you, the last thing I expect from you is to tell me some boring story of how are you. It's for, what I mean is that here, exactly, you have something which is not irony, there is no irony in this, but it's also not directly, uh, and that's how symbolic order works all the time. You don't take it literally, but nonetheless, you take it more seriously than you are aware of. Just one other. Yeah. So, apropos this theme, though, of uh, neither nature nor culture, which you associate specifically with the word excess, um, I wonder whether you would be better served by speaking of this as a deficit, which wouldn't carry with it the sense of, oh, some third option that would necessarily end up in a kind of supernaturalism. Because if you take a look at, for example, David J. Linden and Gary Marcus's work on the central nervous system as a quote unquote kludge, right? The idea is, is that what makes us human is the lack of organic integration and of a full coordination between the components of our contingently plopped together uh, 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 central nervous system and uh, you know, organs of thought. But then, the, but then the problem is not to turn that lack, which has been tested yeah. by people like Lincoln and, yeah. uh, and, and Marcus, into a minus, right? Because if you, get, if you turn right, a lack right. into minus, then you have a negative philosophical anthropology. Here, I would opt for a third version, which is precisely, uh, the less formulated is very nicely couched. For me, lack and excess are strictly corrective. It's almost, almost a kind of a parallax shift, you know, what appears as a lack at the same time, and again, the beauty here, the less has some wonderful formulations in his logic of sense, where he claims how what defines human universe is a lack, an empty spacing structure, and an excess, an object which cannot ever find its space, but his point is that precisely you cannot say, okay, so let us squeeze the object into that empty space and everything will be nice. No, because the lack and the excess are the same thing from two perspectives, as it were. Yeah. So nonetheless, I would, because you know, if you focus too much on lack, I precisely tried to avoid, and here also I don't agree, I don't like Lacan, do you know that this tradition of, oh, human uh, animals who lost their instinctual foundation. You know, that, you know that this theory has a long right-wing tradition. For example, Arnold Gehlen, the German anthropologist developed it, and it was also used directly to justify fascist authoritarianism. That's why humans need strong state power and so So I am not too soft on this celebration of Leg, you know. That's not what Adrian said. We move on to the central committee will decide what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> himself. But we don't know who, who is the central committee, right? I know. One question concerning what you said we're humans by what we cannot do. In, to put it in, if I got you correctly, why am I sounding like Robocop? But, um, <laughs> Um, if we cannot see ourselves, 
how we are in ourselves. This was one yeah, yeah. phrase you used. Yeah, yeah. One could say, for ourselves, we cannot understand what we are in ourselves. Yeah. To put it in Hegelian yeah. terms. Yeah. Therefore, we could say that which is not anymore animal life, but not yet culture, is the loss of the in itself. This is how I understood your reference to the species being, for yeah, example, yeah, animal. But it is the in itself, so we constantly get stuck for ourselves. This is why we're constantly responsible uh, with the lack of essence. So it's not a negation of essence, it's some sort of, let's say, unessence, non-essence with yeah. reference to finite <coughs> judgment. Uh, now, no, only one point. Um, this is, I would say, what Badiou calls the voided animal, somehow. Right now, the whole question is, are you more a Cartesian than him or not? And this would be my Badiouzian reproach. Because for Badiou, uh, the human animal is the voided animal precisely in these terms. There is a non-essence, which then can be, <clears throat> via uh, an, uh, the emergence of a subject, redetermined and so forth. But the void as such is not yet subjective. It can be subjectivized. To link, this is why being an event claims the whole debate between Lacan, Descartes, and himself is about placing the void. So if you're saying the void is proto-subjective via yeah. calling it drive, you're more Cartesian than Badiou. Because Badiou would say there is something void in the situation from which is subjective. Like an effect of subjectivation can happen. And this generates the human animal because it has to deal with that void and be determined constantly. I, I, I agree with this. You, I would say, okay, why not? I am more Cartesian, why not? All I would say is that, do you know that in one of his early texts, which I find extremely interesting, uh, uh, Louis said in early 60s, just before he formulated his standard theory of ideological interpolation, Subjectivity and so on, she played with an alternate idea when he claimed that this ideological subject is just one of the modalities of the subject. She, I think, has ideological subjects, scientific subjects, I don't know what for. Then, after a long struggle, as it were, she identified subject of ideology with subjectivity as such, and it is exactly as you said. His great argument is precisely that the void, the void in of or in or of subject cannot be itself considered a subject. Now, uh, uh, my point here but, uh, is that first, uh, did you notice how here how in what a strange way? But this notion of event reproduces some features of Althusserian ideological interpolation. It is only you are called upon and so on and so on. So uh, I will even go further here than you. The problem here is also the problem of anxiety and so on. Like uh, you have a certain Alain agrees with this. You have a certain let's say, disturbance of human-animal, anxiety, horror, and so on. And here I agree with Alain that there is no event without uh, horror, anxiety, and so on. Because 
event emerges only against the background out from this situation. The problem, I agree with you, is uh, where is the subject here? For reasons which are obviously philosophical, I, I opt for this position that, that, that the moment you have anxiety, anxiety and void in this sense, there must be subjectivity here. Now, up to a point, we can maybe even resolve what, uh, uh, maybe, you know, because Bruno, Bruno Bostels, who maybe also should have been here, he provides here a much more radical solution, which I reject, I hope you also. His solution is that even in order to have anxiety terror, there must already be at least a perspective of the event. That is to say that, that uh, anxiety, terror, this disturbance of living animal, is just the shadow of how an event affects animal life. No, I think, I think nonetheless you have this clearance of horror, anxiety, and then maybe you get an event, maybe not. Uh, but, okay, we don't have time now to go into this, but I agree with you, this is totally the key question where, and especially, what do we mean by subject? I am not saying that we can, I am not opting for the pseudo-theoretical solution, which would have been a false, friendly reconciliation. Oh, we simply mean different things by subject. No, you mean subject of event, I mean whatever. No, no, it's not as simple as that. Problems, true problems, cannot ever be resolved through simple uh, terminological uh, uh, specifications. But, but, uh, but for reasons, it, because, you know, I claim that first, I would have to go into Lacanian stuff here, first, in order to have this voided subject, you, again, here I go at this lack and surplus, né? the voided subject always has something as a kind of an object which fills in this void. I don't believe in this pure, and Alain also not, existentialist bullshit of, oh my god, I'm just a void, and so on, whatever, no? And here, we have a certain level of what Lacan would have called relationship between subject and object, small a, a contingent object, which doesn't work without, again, again, without some, without <coughs> some form of, of, of subjectivity, and so on. Because another problem here is, okay, I will answer you this question then, which I already did it, maybe you gave me the good answer, I forgot. The problem is a very simple one. Is there a place in Alain's, but use edifice for drive? In the Freudian sense. I notice how he oscillates. Sometimes he even uses, this is Alain at his lowest, the term death drive as a simple, almost ethical discord. <laughs> Yeah, like, oh, the, 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 the decadent uh, death drive and so on and so on. You know, uh, I, I, I am here more, not even Cartesian, maybe even Hegelian, you know. I was recently, for my that short booklet, only 1,000 pages on Hegel, reading Hegel on madness, where Hegel has this idea, again, wonderful, much better formulated than in Michel Foucault himself, of how the possibility of madness, this 
radical negativity of madness is constitutive of being human. And Hegel puts it literally, even if this doesn't mean we all have to be crazy at some point. But the only way to account for human culture is a preemptive or whatever reaction against the threat of madness. In this sense, I claim, you have to have this death drive radical negativity that then you can, something can emerge, something not. And again, as you know, following your book, I even want to rehabilitate at this level. The Hegel, which is considered the most anti-Habermasian, anti-democratic crazy, the Hegel of justifying war. You know, usually this is taken as reactionary. <coughs> no, no, I think what we have to do there is only to, to re-Hegelian, to be more Hegelian than Hegel himself. Because Hegel has the right reasoning that negativity has to re-emerge from time to time to remind us of our pure subjectivity against being immersed into social order. The strange thing is that why does Hegel translate this simply in external war? What about, I would prefer to read this necessity of negativity in the style, for example, of Thomas Jefferson, you know, the one who said the tree of freedom has to be watered with blood from time to time. No, like, why not inner destabilization? Because so, again, here, but I agree with you, I don't have simple solutions here, but I talk too much, and I don't. Uh, yeah. uh, your final provocational uh, critique of, of Badiou, uh, uh, I think, is, is mistaken on, on one very fundamental level, Tell me, yeah. which is that uh, the entire point of his ontology is to assert that being is infinite. And so the, so the event is not its exception. So the finite uh, infinite relationship doesn't work at all there. Sorry, uh, could you be clearer here? Because the, what, you, 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 invoke, you, invoke the, you invoke the notion that the, the ethical act is precisely what makes the human It makes yeah. the, the human subject in touch with an infinite yeah. uh, as a break out of uh, the finitude of nature. But it's precisely in Badu, uh, being in its most banal sense, it's infinite. So, so there's no, the, the, the distinction isn't at all uh, cast in that, uh, along those lines. Um, and I think, do you Can you understand it? Yes, yes, because, because the starting point of, 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 of Badiou's ontology is actually, is, is not all. I mean, the, 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 the sprawling infinite of the inconsistent multiple yeah. is, 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 is the discourse uh, that is trying to be captured. It's, it's, the being that is trying to be captured by ontology. So, so that is, in the most banal level, sprawling, unclosed infinite. So, so, so the exception to that, which is events, as you pointed out, is not uh, at all uh, mappable onto the Kantian distinction between finitude and yeah. You know, first, I have problems so, so that's, I mean, but, but I think that actually can point to another place that yeah. I think you, you, you were mistaken earlier. You talked about uh, the, the, uh, the imaginary number being a, a sort of you know, revolutionized. Actually, I mean, the infinite number was already quite operative, right? especially uh, in, uh, if you look at Euler, for example, who already had his formula, his famous formula, you know, uh, natural exponent to pi times yeah. pi times uh, minus one equals zero, the, the famous yeah, yeah. Uh, formula that encapsulates all the most important constants in mathematics. 
Um, it, what, what happened actually was precisely because the, it, but it was, it was present and people accepted it and used it, but it wasn't very important. What happened precisely in, in the 19th century is that the explosion of the use of, and the, the positivization of the, of, the, of the imaginary number, and that is what happens with, with, uh, in, in the event, actually, in that sense. It's not that you have a different sort of infinite, but you have the kind of thing that opens up being such that you didn't know how big it was before. You knew it was infinite, but this, the event brings, cracks off a piece of a fragment, like you did in the passage that you quoted, a fragment of, of being that makes you realize that the infinite that you thought that it was, was actually not all. So it was, it was even bigger than you thought. So I, I, would, I would just... Okay, that's right. the second point. I'm well aware of all the these and then counter and uh, enter and yeah. different... But uh, that's another story. I'm well aware of that. So I concede this point in the simple sense that I just took this example, I literally sure. quoted of imaginary, so okay. If you say it's not no. so, what do I know about history of mathematics? Then I can simply use this was just a neutral example. But still, the first point that you mentioned, yeah. I, what I don't see is precisely the problematic point of uh, but you is that to be even more brutal now. Uh, he promises to do something in his uh, logics of the world. Mm. To, elaborate the passage or how the multiplicity of being structures itself, whatever you want, into the multiplicity of worlds. I claim this is exactly what he does do. I claim there is absolutely no passage whatsoever between this purely mathematicized infinity and different worlds. How can a world, he doesn't approach what for a Hegelian would have been the basic problem. How can something like a world emerge, you know, within the multiplicity, this multiplicity of multiplicities and so on and so on of being? In other words, I also don't see then where do you see the link between this infinity multiplicity and uh, this Kantian what, what I called nominal madness. No, you, 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 you suggested the comparison. So I, what I'm, what I'm saying is that... In what sense? Well, you, because I said nominal. And well, nominal, and this would be but use nominal or what? No, 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 no. I, I'm saying the, 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 the comparison is not... Uh, Which comparison? It's not apt. The comparison between the event's exceptional status and, uh, and uh, the uh, exceptional status of the, the, uh, the Kantian ethical act that you, yeah. you know, it's not uh, comparable in that sense, is, is what I'm saying. Because so the, the difference isn't finite infinite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 let me be, but, but where were, wait a minute, yeah. where was I using even these terms here? Okay, let me be very clear here. My first point is that I think that some, that for me, but use ontology, in the strict sense, not logics of the world, but ontology, multiplicity of multiplicities, and so on, is for me simply too flat. It doesn't have any inherent antagonism, tension, and so on. As such, it cannot do the work. 
second point. Uh, can you be more clear here? I know it must be boring, but for me, this is the central point. Again, put it clearly, the unsuggested uh, 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 homology between what? You, you suggested a homology between, the, uh, between being and event, and the event is an exception on being. Right? In what precise sense it is an exception of being? I know that in, the, in, the, in the sense that it is a transformation of the ways in which multiplicity can be ordered. Yeah, but is this still part of the same multiplicity or not? Because multiplicity was inconsistent in the first place, you can't say it is the same or not. So it's, it's not a question of why is there an exception? It's not substance. Why is there an exception? Because it's because it presents a purely different orthogonal form of but 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 multiplicity differences. Yeah. Why is it an exception then? Because in order for us to call it a multiplicity, that, that we need to find some modes of distinction. Otherwise, it's not a multiplicity. Uh, and then he says there is nothing outside multiplicity. Multiplicities of multiplicities and so on. Yeah. How can you say there is an exception? Because, because of the way in which it is multiple, <laughs> to put it very simply. No, I don't, I don't think this works, because again, again, but because, again, it is a fragment of being, it's just a yeah. different mode of multiplicity, but it's, multiplicities are multiplicities of multiplicities, and so on and so on. Just yeah. intervene and move yeah. on, but uh, I also think maybe what, you, what you're trying to say, and I think this is the, uh, the debate between the two of you, is in a way that as long as correct me if I'm wrong, that in the end, in Badiou, there is a totalization of multiplicity. No. Uh, no. no. I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't agree. I would put it like this. When you say that multiplicities are multiplicity of multiplicities, this means that multiplicities are already composed only of exceptions. So you add a voice. Exactly. That's so what what's the special? No, Alain doesn't want to say this. No, this is, He's much more emphatic. This is the fundamental thesis of being an event. That it's it's that ontology is the discourse of the void. Yeah, and yeah. that's why it's flat. Yeah. Okay. But again, how then? But why then isn't an event simply part of the order of being ontology? In what sense well, is an exception? I think we're going a bit in circles now because. Of no, 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 this is a key question. You know what I reproach him with, really? Secretly, she reintroduces here another notion of being, which is the normalized, uh, phenomenal order of being, blah, 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 that she sits here. She can only claim, because the event is an exception, but not with regard to order of being as such, multiplicity of multiplicity. It is only an exception with regard to a world, a world as already transcendental structure. Yeah, yeah. And here she yeah. sits, I claim. Yeah. Just one quick reply, and we focus more on the human animals. There are yeah, questions. Yeah. I mean, we are human animals. I, I, you know, you, you might call it a trick, but I, I think that it's uh, one of the truly original uh, ideas, I think, in philosophy in the last. No, no, I agree, I agree with this. All I'm saying is that, again, it's uh, when he says, you must know when he speaks about exception. You remember in logics of the world, where he says, for example, axiom of democratic materialism. There are only languages and uh, living bodies with the exception of events. Sorry, 
this means something much more radical. This means there is something which is not. In what sense? So this is not just an exception in this generalized sense. It means something very specific. It means uh, there are only bodies and, again, and languages, but there is some, of course, not substantially different occurrence and so on, which breaks with this logic. I, I would say it's form. I mean, it's, what, is, what is new, what is an exception, is precisely a new form. And this new form expresses multiplicity in a way that, according to his notion of history, which is fundamentally different in terms of its presentation of multiplicity. Uh, here we, okay, let's talk now because here I have another problem. <laughs> it's even more fundamental. There will be a long chapter on this in my book. <laughs> <laughs> This is for me the true problem with Alena, that uh, his ontology and phenomenology relies all too much on the opposition between presence and representation. Ultimately, even in his politics, this brings me to this, this anti-statist, as if we have some authentic presentation, mass movement, authentic in politics, and then you have the form of state, uh, which is kind of a, this is even maybe the Sartrean uh, legacy. legacy, you know, this idea practical inert and so on. And here I am for full rehabilitation of representation. But this is another topic. <laughs> okay, we do have time for a couple of more questions. Do we? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry? You know, let me tell you a joke, which I like, very short one. I once spoke with a lady from Germany who told me that she, uh, that she, uh, she has sex with her husband only once every two months, and then I told, asked her why at all. And she told me, yes, so that, it's just so that she can tell her psychiatrist that she still has sex with her husband, you know, like, just, you know, and so, so my idea is that just let's have one question so that we can claim that we had a debate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, but this was the inner circle, I mean. Yeah, exactly. I think it's better if, um, is there any other question? I mean, I don't, we do have, because I feel very here, here the, the band of three of us totally, my God, this is an obscenity. <laughs> we totally monopolized, uh, so please, somebody should save democracy so that we can save a lively debate. She gave me the front number of those, telling Okay, this is no debate. Um, one comment and one quick question. One comment, maybe it's interesting if you, if you draw or somebody that you follows you draws, to do some kind of comic. To do? To do some kind of comic to compile your references. Because they're very animated. Comic, like, like yeah, comic book. Yeah, lots of comics, but looser. Sorry, comic or comic? Comic. Com comic, like. Comic book. A comic book, yeah. 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 Okay. She likes to make a comic with you. Yeah. But there's yeah, I would say some of, the, some of your references you know, would make interesting animation. Jason. You know? Like, some of these things. Anyways, I have a child could draw them. No, no. Basically, because there was a book now on me. Yeah, yeah. It's already in this kind of visual interaction. Yeah, but maybe you can take control of that. But you're better. She's saying you're better as a fictional survivor. No, I'm not saying that. No, this is not an insult. I'm serious. Okay, but besides that, I was thinking I want to see you. Or maybe you can draw.
draw some of this. So it'll be interesting. Um, another thing is maybe do you feel it would be useful maybe to delve into a dialectic beyond if we come as humans to understand or ad admit, risk admitting this ethnocentric type of um, categorization of the non-human animal, the human animal. If we think it might be interesting to set up some papers or talks that moves and, and psychoanalytical discourse that moves beyond those categorizations into the animal, the similar drive, similar even rationalization we can say in similar experiences of non-human human animals to move beyond the distinction, because even as an American person, the, the totemic, they've already moved beyond that. There's no distinction between the non-animal and the animal. The symbolism is strong and it's real and it's non-magical, as you say, and, and it's, it, it moved beyond that, that this distinction doesn't exist um, because of the drives um, and the, the understanding of whether or not, you know, understanding of death, blah, 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 is beyond the meaning of why we would have the symbols of animal or the, you know, so maybe it would be interesting to have that kind of philosophical discourse um, that moves beyond the, the distinction of the non-animal, to the similar experience, and to assume a type of rationalization that non-human animals can have in similar experiences as we have similar needs. Yeah, but the problem for me with this is that I agree with you that this is how this remote world function, but you know, I can give you an example now, not from comics, but from cartoons. What all often fascinated me is, for example, in Tom and Jerry and some others, you know, sometimes, and I like those scenes where a cat, like, who is who, Tom? Yes, okay. He's caught into something and part of his skin gets, like, ripped off, and you see beneath a human body, even with socks and so on. And I think there is a deep proof that in cartoons, animals are basically humans dressed up as animals. And I claim that, uh, you know, which is why, this is my suspicion about this pre-modern, uh, non-anthropomorphic worlds. That are they really non-anthropomorphic? What if they are even more violently? anthropomorphic. I mean, I'm always very suspicious of these religions which uh, praise, uh, you know, uh, we are just tiny part of nature, nature in its beauty, blah, blah, blah. But then you can see that this nature in itself, with some deep ecologies, okay, I'll put it like this. I don't know any more brutally violent anthropomorphics than so-called deep ecologists. Precisely in their description of your nature, like I, an idiot, I was so glad when he dropped that. A Slovene mountain climber was <laughs> accused of risking his life, and then he said, No, you know, before I climb the mountain, I listen to the mountain. And only if the mountain invites me, I go up. No? And this is called a non anthropomorphism. <laughs> you know, like, I, 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 I mean, uh, I'm here generally skeptical, you know, also in the sense of. Like my great respect for for Buddhism and so on, but I don't think that that I don't believe in. I think that especially these so-called deep spiritual experiences can serve perfectly to justify unimaginable brutality, cruelty, and so on. This is a misunderstanding. In my experience, 
metamorphizing of the animals. Really, what we're saying when we say Crow's wife did this and Crow reacted yeah. this way, we are actually doing the opposite and placing the template of the animal on us. And that's understood in that religion. No, no, no. I agree with you, but. So I think yeah, that you're but right. Okay, then I will give you another example which I like of how I think we should really break of our, at least, West, for example. What I really hate, and I got some friends with them who confirmed this to me, you know, this left liberal painting of Native Americans, I prefer the term Indians, and you must know why. Because we, in Missoula, Montana, I spoke with one of them, and he told me he hates the term, which is now politically correct, Native Americans. He said, what? We are Native and you are cultural, or what? We are part of nature, and so on. He told me, maybe you know the joke, I'm sorry, he told me, I much prefer to be called Indians, because in this way, my name is at least a monument to white men's stupidity. You know? <laughs> they thought they are in India when they came. No? And he told me that he's so sick and tired of this, you know, we white people, we are violent, imperialist, Cartesian, reducing nature to mechanism, but you Native Americans, you have a holistic attitude of dialogue. And then he tried to convince me, I loved it, cow, fuck you white people, we burned more forests, we killed more buffaloes, we destroyed more nature than you ever will do, stupid white people. <laughs> they get such a simple but deep insight into how this false celebration of the ethnic address, you know, holistic, organic, whatever, is really secretly, to use my old joke about all this, it's the decaffeinated other. It's the most brutally violent uh, reduction of the other. Okay, one final question, yeah. if there is, because I thought that Bruno and... Uh... Yes, I think that um, you were a bit uh, anxious to get back on what was uh, the theme of articulation which came out at the last yes. part of your paper, which was articulation between the human animal and yes, the subject, yeah. because a procedure of distinction is needed. Yeah. And uh, the whole problem is that, as Frank was correctly pointing, already but you, the subject is not a substance as long as it is a procedure. And it is not a substance, first and foremost, because it is not a void, so a negative substance yeah. or voided substance, yeah. but is that which allows a 